Well, good morning. Uh, again, another welcome. I don't know what I've done. I hope this... In-ear monitors and mask and over-ear microphone. It's a little bit too complicated for me. Anyway, I hope it will last. Um, it's really good to see you all. Um, this is kind of uh, last Sunday before Christmas, COVID edition. So I was meant to be Alizar today. Speaker was meant to be someone else. Bassist was meant to be somebody else, but we've all kind of played musical positions. So I'm really grateful to Alizar for stepping in at the last minute when um, I foolishly volunteered to preach. Um, <clears throat> probably going to be regretted by you more than I. But um, it's great to see you. Uh, welcome to everybody online. I know some of our ex-ICPers are watching because they're intrigued by the title. So um, we'll see how it goes. Harry Potter and the Desiccated Coconut. What can I be talking about? Um, we're going to start with... Uh, we're going to turn to Scripture, first of all. And we're in the book of Luke. Well-known well-known verses. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and, and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, 
which were just as they had been told. Now, anyone who knows me at all will probably guess, as Ali did, she knows me quite well, um, that a sermon titled Harry Potter and the Desiccated Coconut is going to focus a little bit on things that I don't like. Um, Now, this may sound a little self-centered for a sermon um, on the Sunday before Christmas, I'm really grateful, actually, grateful for Melissa, because I think her amount of Christmas joy and me average out to a kind of normal (laughs) level of celebration, so it's really great to to see that. Um, But I want you to bear with me, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that I don't like. Um, Some people who remain nameless, (coughs) Ali, um, tell me I possibly share these dislikes too freely, Um, but... I'm here, you're there, you're stuck, so you're going to hear some of them. First of all, Americanisms. Now, even though I just said a whole bunch of stuff, um, Americanisms, you know, as a, as a Brit, actually, according to my passport now, an Irishman, um, they're great on me, unless it suits me. Stupid, for instance. That's a much better pronunciation than the English version. We say stupid. Oh, you're so stupid. Now, we probably shouldn't call people stupid, but if you want to, stupid has more power. Uh, But in general, sidewalk, gas, aluminum, these things, great. And talking of grated, desiccated coconut, hideous. Should be illegal. It's no excuse. Coconut oil, fine. Coconut milk, absolutely fine. The taste of coconut, great. Desiccated coconut, no. And when it's outlawed, the next thing to go with it would be grapefruit. I hear people say, This grapefruit is so nice. It could almost be an orange. We'll eat an orange then. Don't keep eating grapefruits in the vain hope that one of them might almost be as good as an orange. Just get an orange. And I could go on. Couldn't I, darling? Yes. Um, (laughs) But I won't. Okay, so there's one more. Harry Potter. Possibly the most controversial. Um, I have a friend. uh, A lot of you would know her. um, And she is a big, big, big big, and I've written it with five eyes in my notes, Harry Potter fan. Um, Now, I don't know that much about Harry Potter. Uh, I've read one of the books. I've seen, through periods of sleep, bits of all of the 50 or so films that have been made. Um, But a lot of people like Harry Potter, I get that. And uh, this friend of mine, let's call her, oh, I don't know, Yana, if you're watching, um, She loves everything about the bespectacled boy, to the extent that, when she lived in Prague, she used to play in a local Quidditch team. Now, I know enough about Harry Potter to know that the defining characteristics of Quidditch are you fly around on a broomstick, and apart from the quaffle, and I can't believe I'm even saying that word, but apart from the quaffle, all the balls involved in the game are animate. They move around of their own accord. Am I right? Am I right? I just 
Checking this with you? Okay. Now, in real life, Quidditch... <laughs> it's a bunch of people running around a muddy field, holding a broomstick, or plastic pipes are allowed under the International Quidditch Confederation laws. There is such a thing. Uh, between their legs, throwing a deflated volleyball around, and trying to snatch a tennis ball... I kid you not, a tennis ball in a long sock which is stuck in the shorts of a person cavorting around the pitch pretending to be the snitch. I just realised that rhymes, but that was accidental. <laughs> it's easy to make fun of real-life Quidditch, and I do. However, however, you might well be asking, what's the point of all this? You know, it's interesting background information on me. But what's this got to do with Christmas? Well, the point of this is anyone... Uh, what's it got to do with Christmas? Sorry. The point of this is anyone who would look at Quidditch would say, hmm, this is odd. And that's not to bring balance, because Ali's really worried that this isn't going to be balanced. Uh, to bring balance to this... Quidditch isn't alone in being odd. I mean, it is odd to run around a field with a stick between your legs and stuff like that, but it's no more odd than running around and saying, oh, well, you can't use your hands, but then if you do use your hands, you're the only person that can, and if you do, you're only allowed to do it within this area, and then if you do, you can then only hold on to it for six seconds. Is it six these days? Ten? I don't know, I can't remember. Bonus marks for identifying the greatest goalie of all time? No? No, I was going to go cultural and have better check, but this is Gordon Banks. When men were men and didn't wear gloves when playing, playing football. Um, it's pretty absurd. You know, if you're going to play a game, you have to have handicaps. Or, yes, a different game. You can use your hands, but you can only throw the ball backwards. And then, if you're lying on the ground with it, you have to let go, and everyone on the other team has to get the other side of the ball, because otherwise you're offside. And if Bex is watching, this is the great Jonah Lomu, literally and metaphorically tramping on the England team. Um, the guy on the right whose name escapes me. I can't remember. Jeremy Guscott, thank you. Two seconds after this, he was flat on his back, having been foolish enough to stand in the way of Jonah Lomu uh, going at full steam. Or, if we're talking about ridiculous rules, you can be out LBW if the ball was going on to hit the wicket, but only if it didn't pitch outside leg stump, and even then, only if it hits you in line with the stumps, unless, of course, you weren't offering a stroke. Have I got that right? Hurt. I actually had to look it up because LBW confuses me no end. And points for this great man? Jimmy Anderson. Uh, greatest bowler ever. Sport has rules. Um, and if you've ever seen the Royal Ashbourne Shrove Tide football game, which has almost no rules, you'll see why sport has rules. This is a this is what it looks like. The game goes on for two days. It stops in the evening. And that's 
the rare occasion when you actually get to see the football. Um, it's very strange. So, sport has rules. And it's probably unfair of me to make fun of Quidditch. But the problem I have with Quidditch is, and this is my point, it isn't what it claims to be. It's not Quidditch, as you find in the books and the films. It's a bunch of people running around a field playing a weird hybrid of tag, rugby, basketball, dodgeball, and hobby horsing. And that is a thing, if you didn't know. I'd look it up if you want to. Um, so this brings me on to my final thing that I don't like that I'm going to talk about today, which is Christmas. Now, I'm not a complete Grinch. I love spending time with my family, whether it's just the family here or extended family. I love the opportunity to get together good food, good wine, candlelight, presents, log fires, all those things which are fantastic. And I like Christmas lights. I wasn't actually responsible for this, but um, I'd keep Christmas lights up all year if I could. Um, I really like them. And Christmas, as told in the Bible, is, it's simply breathtaking. Breathtaking. But Christmas as we know it, like on the screen, I'm not so keen. It is, for me, to the, its relationship to the real Christmas is the same as the relationship between Quidditch in real life and Quidditch in the book. It's fake. If you think of the average nativity play, sorry to do that to you. This, by the way, if you've never seen the Flint Street nativity, it's on YouTube, you should watch it. Um, it's a bunch of adults dressed as kids with oversized furniture. Um, Mary and Joseph, in our traditional nativity play, they travel to Bethlehem with Mary riding on a donkey. No. We've just read the account. There's no donkey. And even as we read the account, we see that it looks like Mary and Joseph had been there a while when Jesus was born. They trail around the cold, friendless city looking for a room in an inn, but there's none available. No. It's really nice to see the, the current translation, the NIV, uses the phrase guest room rather than in. The only other time we find this word in the New Testament is the upper room where Jesus holds the Last Supper. They didn't trail around looking for an inn being turned away by cold, heartless innkeepers. They went to stay with Joseph's family. Can you imagine in the Middle East going back to your hometown and going to stay in a hotel? The most uh, hospitable cultures in the world, probably, and they go, oh, great to see you, Joseph. There's a hotel down the road. No. There wasn't room in the upper room, maybe, because brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles were staying. And so when Jesus came to be born, he was put in the, the feeding trough because that main area of the house was shared with the animals. It was warm. Probably a bit smelly, but warm. So no stable either. There's no mention of a stable. Um, 
It's just where the animals lived in the bottom of the house. The shepherds come. Yeah, we've just read about that. They brought a lamb. I don't know. Maybe they did. I'm not sure uh, if a newborn lamb is that useful to a family, but maybe they did. Then the Magi visit, and they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. Absolutely. But probably much later um, than Christmas night, as it's usually portrayed. Remember, Herod, he commanded that all all boys under the age of two were killed, not all newborn children. So our average nativity scene, and there are some average and below average nativity scenes all around Prague. It's one of those uh, weird things, isn't it? The most atheist of nations and the unbelievable number of nativity scenes. But it's, it's an imagined thing. It's not how it actually happened. It's a Victorianized myth. And maybe they make for a good story. You know, the one kind-hearted innkeeper, the son of God in a stable. But it's not real. It's a good job that I was... But you may not think this, but it was a good job I was playing in the band this morning because as I was uh, getting dressed, I was listening to a, a program on Radio 4 called Something Understood. And it was all about the myth of Christmas. So if I hadn't been practicing, I would have been busily rewriting my sermon to be more targeted on, the, on this. But I think, I hope, still what I've got is about how whilst the traditional Christmas that gets broadcast and played out in primary schools across the world is imaginary. It's as imaginary as Quidditch in a muddy field. It's not the real thing. That's why it's up there with desiccated coconut and grapefruit for me. Because it's also unnecessary. You can't embellish the account of Jesus' birth. The reality couldn't be any more profound. It couldn't be more extraordinary. It couldn't be more compelling. The Christmas story, as told in nativity plays, is a bit like when Bruce Willis got his hands on the day of the jackal. It just eviscerates the original. If you've ever seen the original day of the jackal film, and then this... It's not even a poor copy. And that's what the traditional Christmas story, which is mythologized and told and Victorianized, is so unnecessary and disappointing. Have you seen Jackal? I didn't put the picture up, but he's bleached his hair blonde so he can't be recognized, because obviously you wouldn't recognize it was Bruce Willis. But um, it's a terrible film, don't watch it. Um, So what does the Bible say about Christmas. We've read Luke's account. Matthew has 12 verses. 11 and a half of them are actually to do with the visit of the Magi. And there's this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. That's it. It's really simple. It's really Low key. 
Mark doesn't mention it, not a word. John gets all metaphysical about the word becoming flesh, but he doesn't go into any details about Jesus' birth. And so we only have Luke, apart from Matthew's account, to base our understanding of the nativity on. We can take a slight diversion now, which I think is necessary. I said earlier that the, the story needs no embellishment. It doesn't, we can't do anything to make it more extraordinary than it is. Last time I spoke here, I talked about the problem with Psalm 51. How could David, my perception of a problem with Psalm 51, how could David, having committed adultery and murder, how could he say that he's only sinned against God? And I hope I managed to explain that it's only if we can truly start to grasp how holy God is and how sinful we are that that statement makes any sense. Because we just look at it with this narrow, uh, limited view. It looks like a distortion of justice unless we can grasp the true nature of who God is and what God is like. And that's the same with the story of Christmas. Unless we can truly understand the nature of God, of course we can't, we're mortal and we're limited. But unless we can get a glimpse of who God is and what God is like, we can't really grasp the significance, the absolute history-changing moment that we remember at Christmas time. And it's as central to our faith, and it's central to the gospel. Easter, when we remember and celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, you know, that's still the most significant time in the church's calendar. That's the fulcrum of history. Everything leads up to that point and leads from that point. Because if Jesus hadn't died, if Jesus hadn't risen again, then there is no good news. There's no gospel. It's all just it's all smoke and mirrors and nonsense. But that central aspect of the good news relies on the mystery of Jesus' birth. And by mystery, I don't, mean to make it, I don't mean myth. I mean something which is difficult for us to understand. But we have to understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we say it so frequently, perhaps we don't really think about it. Fully God and fully man. Pre-existing eternal, one of the three persons of the Trinity. And if he hadn't been fully God, then his going to the cross would have been futile in terms of our salvation. He didn't die on the cross to set us an example. He didn't die, excuse me, he didn't die on the cross to, to make a point. He wasn't the first person to die, obviously. And he wasn't the first to be raised to life. But he's the only one whose death and resurrection could have any impact on our sin and our relationship with our holy God. An Anglican vicar years ago, when I was about 18, told me, 
you know, Jesus was interesting. This is an actual paid-up Anglican priest. Jesus was an interesting guy. He was probably a good guy. Um, but he was just one of many, just another miracle worker, to a penny. He actually used that phrase. That was pretty much in the, um, the program talking about the myth of Christmas. Jesus was fully God. But he wasn't some mystical God figure floating around the earth in a hazy glow. He was also a real flesh and bone man. Remember in John's first letter how keen he is because of the rise of a doctrine called Gnosticism that was going around at the time. He's really keen to point out the physicality of it. He says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. He was from the beginning. This causes an echo of the opening of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. That's the miracle of, I said really that John didn't talk about Christmas, but that's the essence of it. The eternal Word becoming flesh. Jesus was fully God, and he was fully man. And this is important. There's a Depeche Mode song, uh, just to spread the cultural references a bit, called Personal Jesus. Now, I don't think the song is at all Christian, although Johnny Cash, when he recorded his version, which is absolutely luminous, by the way, you need to listen to it. Uh, And thank you to Dave Lamborn for putting me onto that. Um, Johnny Cash thought his version was the best gospel song he'd recorded. But the essence of Personal Jesus is our need for a real flesh and bone Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who understands us. Now, where the song goes wrong is suggesting that, you know, everybody needs a personal Jesus, but not actually Jesus himself. What the Bible teaches is that Jesus is the same for all of us, that he is our personal Jesus, but there's only one, and that's him. There's no alternative but he was fully man. He was real flesh and bone. And this is as vital to the gospel as the fact that he was fully God. If you follow British politics, I'm really sorry, um, but you'll know one thing which is hitting home with some voters at the moment is there's a sense that the Eton and Oxford-educated elite which are running the country are somehow out of touch that it might not be possible for Alexander Boris to Pfeffel Johnson to understand what the person in the street might experience. How many of them in government, people ask, have stood at the supermarket checkout and had to put something back because there's not enough money? How many of them, to quote Preston, have found that so often 
there's a little bit of month left at the end of the money. I'm sure many of you have had that experience. But being out of touch with reality, being out of touch with our experiences, is not, it's not uniquely leveled at British politicians. I'm sure every politician in the world has been accused of that, certainly in every political system. But it can't be leveled at Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews says this about him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Jeffrey Bull, I don't know if any of you have heard of Jeffrey Bull. He was a, uh, a Christian missionary uh, captured by the Chinese Red Army in Tibet as the country fell in 1950. And he was imprisoned for three years. They thought he was a spy. They tried to brainwash him. They kept him in solitary confinement. And um, he came to speak at our church when I was a teenager. So I can't remember whether this phrase which has stuck, or this account which has stuck with me, was something in the book or something he said. But... On one occasion when he was feeling very low, he was in prison, in solitary confinement, he was being subjected to all sorts of horrible things. And he thought, how does God, you know, he, he doesn't understand this. He can't sympathize with me right now. He was never imprisoned. He's never suffered these privations. And then he had a an epiphany, if you like. And he suddenly thought, on the other hand, almighty God, creator God, in the body of a baby. It's a, it's a wonderful thing for um, Alizar. We he was showing videos earlier as Netan does more and more things. You know, it's great when they can hold their head up, when they can sit up, when they learn to walk, when they can grasp things. Tremendous achievements. Imagine when Creator God managed to hold his head up for the first time. It's extraordinary. The the imprisonment, if you like, of someone who was fully God in the body of a baby. You know, in our disnified, Victorianized Christmas, little Lord Jesus might have made no crying, but we can be sure that this isn't the case. We would, um, some of my alleged friends in the music team were threatening to choose Little Drummer Boy as one of the songs we should sing today. And I said, because that's just what you want, isn't it? You've just got the baby to sleep and a kid comes in banging a drum. <laughs> and uh, somebody points out, I think in the words it says, Mary nodded. No. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think she nodded. Um, 
But these things, they take away from the absolute jaw-dropping mystery of the Christmas story. It wasn't taken for granted that Jesus, not by everyone, would be born in, in poverty. You know, when the Magi came, looking for the king of Israel, the person who's been born king of the Jews, they went to the palace, obviously. After Jesus was born, we read in Matthew, in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It's where you'd expect a king to be, isn't it? In the palace? In the capital city? So the reason I go all a bit bar humbug with the trees and the tinsel and people feeling compelled to be happy when they're not and the stress for people who don't have enough food or enough money for presents or the relentless schmaltz It's just because it's not real. The real Christmas is simply extraordinary. It should be enough. The real Christmas. Somehow, the eternal creator God became human. And he lived a real life here on this earth. We don't need to dress it up. The birth must have been, you know, for Mary and Joseph, it must have been as routinely terrifying as any first birth. There's pain. There's a lot of mess. There's probably quite a lot of shouting. And there must have been so many questions. No wonder Mary stored all these things up in her heart and thought about them. Because although it was laid out to her in advance, there must have been so many questions. How, Lord? (laughs) You know, this baby, how is this the Messiah? How? But in the center of all this shouting, pushing, Everything else that goes along with childbirth, there was this world-changing truth, history-changing truth. Jesus the Messiah was born. You know, when our two girls were born, once everything was sorted, the first thing I did, of course, I probably took a picture, but the first thing I did after that was went outside and found a payphone. That's how old I am. And phoned our parents. Because that's what you do, isn't it? When your baby's born, you tell people. Uh, I love the fact that you know, God pulled rank on the rest of us. He didn't have to go and find a payphone. He sent angels. He sent angels to shout and sing. So forget the tinsel. And remember this, today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. 
He is the Messiah, the Lord. So I'm not asking you to go and burn your Christmas trees and throw away your tinsel and, and stop being happy, Melissa. Not at all. Enjoy, if you're able to, family time. Enjoy family that's laid on by someone else. But always remember that the actual story at the heart of Christmas is more astonishing than anything anyone could make up or imagine. The eternal creator God made flesh come to this earth for us. So that really is a cause for joy. Heavenly Father, we can't fully understand uh, what happened at that first Christmas. We don't understand how your son became fully human, but we know that he did and we know that he was still fully the eternal son, pre-existing, perfect. And we thank you that he did come. We thank you that you sent him. We thank you for the joy expressed by those angels. And we thank you for the truth of what he is able to bring us that once he had grown and lived, he went and died for each one of us. He went and died so that our sin would not be counted against us. And so as we uh, move into this time of Christmas, we just ask that you will help us to remember that that baby, he is Lord. He's Lord of all. and He came and he died for us. And we thank you and we praise you for that.